Good evening, everybody. Oh, that's nice. Welcome back. Great to see you all. I hope um, you're looking forward to this evening. Having last week looked at some introductory stuff, today we look in some more detail at some of the context uh, that we talked about last week. We said last week that reading the Bible is all about questions and talked a bit more about questions, but also about context and that there are multiple contexts we need to know something of to understand what we're reading in the Bible. And today's task is to look at two of these main groups of context. We're going to talk about the scriptural context, so what does the Bible say before the Gospels, and then the historical and religious context. What was going on in the place where Jesus lived his life and uh, did his ministry, and what did people in Jesus' day believe, and how did they therefore kind of interpret Jesus in that light? In the last few days, as I've planned this session, I've realised how ridiculous it is to try and do this in one evening. So um, the conclusion I came to, to save my sanity, was that I've put down what I think are the key things in the notes, and basically we'll go through as much of it as we fit in in a reasonable time until we're kind of flagging a bit tonight. Um, and then there's the rest there, you can go, you can read it at home if you want to. And I would recommend doing that because some of the things we won't talk about tonight will be helpful when we actually read the Gospels uh, over the coming weeks. So if you get a chance over the week, do go back to the bits we don't look at because that will help you. Let's kick straight off with the scriptural context. What does the Bible's big story say before the Gospels? It's really important, as I said last week, to always remember when you're reading the Bible, even though there's 66 different books, it is all telling one story, starting with creation, ending with a new creation. And yet the way we read the Bible often doesn't pay attention to that. Often we start, say, in the New Testament, which is a bit like the equivalent of picking up a a novel, starting halfway through, And of course, you read, you've got no idea who these people are. You've got no idea what's going on. What's their big problem trying to be solved? And so actually getting the broad sweep of what happens in the Old Testament means when we open Matthew 1, the beginning of the New Testament, we've actually got a chance of keeping up with who these people are, what this story is, what's actually going on. And the way we're going to do that tonight is by tracing this story, looking at the theme of the kingdom of God. There are lots of different themes and approaches you can take to the Old Testament, a kind of Old Testament theology. But the kingdom of God is a really good one to do, and it's particularly useful because it's such a key term in the New Testament. The thing that Jesus keeps saying in the Gospels that he's come to inaugurate, to bring to earth and bring to reality God's kingdom. And so we're going to take the kingdom of God as our kind of theme, our motif, and we're going to have three different headings. And for each part of the story, we need to ask what's the status or what are the identity of this heading at that part of the story. And you see in their notes, the kingdom of God is God's people living in God's place and living under his rule and his blessing. So each of those three things need to come together. That's kind of a summary definition of the kingdom of God. And at each stage of this story, we can ask for a kingdom status update. And whenever you open the Bible, it's worth saying, what's the status of the kingdom of God here? Who are God's people? Where is God's place? And who, if anyone, is under God's rule and blessing? And how is that the case? So that's what we're going to do as we go through the story. What we're also going to do, we've got a low tech tonight. We've scrapped the um, projector. And uh, we're going to do it with a Blue Peter kind of style thing here with a timeline. So that when we finish the scriptural story, we'll be able to look back and see across the room how this story progresses with some key pictures to remind us of it. So let's kick off with the kingdom created. We start at the very beginning with Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Genesis 1 to 3 are the prologue to the Bible. They're like a gateway into it. Without understanding the first three chapters of the Bible, we don't stand much 
hope of understanding anything else that comes. Even though they're such a small percentage of the overall, they really are so vital to understanding everything else that comes along. In Genesis 1 and 2, the stories of creation, God creates a perfect world. Humans are there as the pinnacle of his creation, the only ones made in his image. And humans are designed to live with God, designed to be in relationship with God as his people and to be there experiencing his rule and his blessing. In Genesis 1, we get the kind of widescreen blockbuster version of this with the seven days. There are three days where God makes a blank canvas, as it were, and then the three final days where God fills the canvas with the creatures and the humans like ourselves. But all of this is actually leading to day seven. Not day six, which traditionally Protestants have tend to think we think it's all about us. And so when humans are created, we think that's where the story reaches its pinnacle. That's why the story in Genesis 1 actually finishes in Genesis 2-3. Because someone, when they put in the chapter, thought humans are the most important bit. We'll break the chapter there. Actually, day seven, God's rest is the most important bit. The whole end goal of creation was rest. So day seven, we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Rest is God's creational intent. This doesn't mean that God's ideal world has no work in it. We see in Genesis 2 in the garden, just a moment, the man was put there to work it and to keep it. This isn't rest as a kind of contrasted with work. This is rest as a way of symbolising the fact that God has finished his creation. And now he and humans are able to live in perfect relationship with them being God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And the clue here is, if you notice, days one to six, they all have that repeating refrain. There was morning, and there was, or there was evening, there was morning, the uh, first day or the second day. Come to day seven, there's no statement like that. There is no end to the seventh day. This rest is meant to continue. And if you're familiar with Hebrews, you might know that gets picked up there um, as well. Genesis 2 then gives us the kind of intimate, close-up version of the creation story. If Genesis 1 is a blockbuster, cinematic spectacle, Genesis 2 is the beautiful watercolour painting of what happens. And it tells us about this garden that God plants in the earth in a place called Eden. And into this garden, he puts Adam. He puts this man there to work it, to keep it. And from Adam, he makes Eve. And this account in Genesis 2 tells us more about what God's rest is meant to look like. We find that there are meant to be some perfect relationships. There's a relationship between God and between humans. The relationship between humans and other humans, represented by Adam and Eve. And then the relationship between the humans and the created world. And God gives, in this garden, permission to Adam and Eve for them to eat from all the trees of the garden, except for one. So our timeline symbol here is going to be a tree. There's one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, whatever you do, you're not to eat from that tree. All the others, he says, you can eat from. But that one, don't eat from. He says, on the day you do, you're surely going to die. Really bad things are going to start happening. So this is the original plan. This is how God wants it to be. If we ask what's our kingdom status here, it's the kingdom created. God's people are Adam and Eve. God's place is Eden, where he can dwell in intimate relationship with them. And God's rule and blessing will be absolutely perfect for Adam and Eve, with the condition that they obey God by not eating anything from that tree. And that's how things are meant to be. But of course, as we know, turn over one page to chapter 3, 
and things don't stay so good. Things soon actually go terribly, terribly wrong. A serpent comes along. The serpent comes along and tempts Eve to eat from this one tree that God had told them not to eat from. She eats from the tree. She gives fruit to her husband, Adam. He eats from the tree. Immediately, everything that God had made perfect becomes shattered, becomes broken. Everything gets destroyed. And God comes along. And the first clue is that God comes along. And rather than this wonderful, intimate relationship between humans and God, Adam and Eve actually hide. And God goes, what are you doing? Where are you? Why are you hiding? And then God has this long speech in which he shows that because they've eaten from this one tree, everything has been uh, shattered that God had made. Those perfect relationships have been broken. The relationship uh, with the land becomes difficult. The land's cursed. It's going to produce weeds and thorns and farming it for food is going to be just really hard work. Human relationships become fractured and become difficult between Adam and Eve. And ultimately, the relationship between God and humans is totally shattered. They get sent out of this garden, sent away from God's place. God had promised death from eating from that tree. Yet in a sense, they don't seem to die immediately. They live for quite a while, actually, afterwards. This death was even worse than an immediate physical death. This was a spiritual death. Where they're created to be with God, suddenly they get totally separated from him, no longer in his place, no longer under his rule and blessing. That rest that characterised God's creational intent at the end of the seventh day is totally shattered. People are separated, destined to spend eternity apart from him. The kingdom status now, from kingdom created, we've gone immediately to kingdom lost. God's people, there are none. God's place, or humans have been banished away from it. And God's rule and blessing is no longer over any humans. Instead, actually, they don't receive blessing. They're now receiving the curse that came from the rebellion against God. And this is the first kind of watermark, uh, you know, landmark in the Bible story. The whole rest of the Bible story is about, well, how do we solve this disastrous problem that occurs in Genesis 3 and get back to what God wanted in Genesis 1 and 2? It's hugely, hugely important. But at the same time, there's a real risk that we often jump from Genesis 3 to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. And many of us would instinctively read uh, the appearance of Jesus on the scene just against that backdrop, which is an important backdrop, but we forget the fact that there's a whole road, load of books and thousands of years of history that come in between, and God wasn't doing nothing in between them. And so this next part of the story is equally important and is the part that we, um, as modern Protestants certainly, are most likely to miss out. So the story continues with the kingdom promised. Because God could have just ended up there. He'd warned them what would happen. They'd done it. It happened. He could have just said, that's it. I'm leaving it. They had their, um, they've done what they want. They can go their way. But the amazing truth is that God wasn't happy to leave us in the mess that we had created. If you look from Genesis 4 through to 11, the kind of early, very, very earliest history of humans, it shows the spread of sin and death. The very next story finds a brother getting jealous of his brother and murdering him. But there are also examples in these chapters of God's grace, his favour shown to those who are totally undeserving. And you actually get this cycle of humans sinning, doing something wrong, but then God showing grace, God being gracious. So a good example is in the flood. Humanity has become so corrupt that God sends the flood to wipe it out, to kind of start again. There's an act of judgment or human sin, but then also there's an act of grace in that he saves Noah, he preserves the human race through Noah, he gives the rainbow as the promise that he'll never do it again. 
And in chapter 11, we get the story of the Tower of Babel. You know, the one where the people have been told to scatter by God, to fill the earth, to multiply. And they go, no, 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 we don't want to do that. We want to stay together. And we want to be really good. And we're going to build this big tower and we're going to reach God and show him just how good we are. And there's a great moment, the text says, and so God went down to see their tower. And he, uh, he uh, mixes up their languages. So they can't build a city together. And they get scattered. There's human sin and there's judgment. But then you read the story, you think, well, where's the act of grace in this one? Where's God doing something, even though it's totally undeserved, to help out? And to find that one, we've got to turn over the page. It goes to Genesis 12, and that's where we meet Abram. Abram, Abraham, as he becomes, is one of the most important figures in the Bible. Abraham is a wandering nomad who's moving around with his father and their, uh, their clan. But God calls him, calls him to leave his father, calls him to um, move away from the place where he'd been living with his father and makes him incredible promises. He makes with Abraham uh, a covenant. A covenant is an agreement made between God and humans where God uh, instigates it. It's a God uh, kind of begun, a God-ordained agreement. And this covenant is unconditional. God makes promises to Abraham. And he says that whatever might happen in human history, he, God, is going to make sure that all these promises are fulfilled. And when we look at what these promises to Abraham are, they're basically a restoration, a fixing of everything that had been lost when Adam and Eve sinned. These promises to Abraham are the way that God is going to reverse all the problems that have come through that initial rebellion. And there's three parts to these promises. First of all, Abraham will have many descendants who will become a great nation and will be God's people. And we have the first part of our kingdom uh, structure, that God's people, it's going to be Abraham's family, a great nation descended from him. These people are going to dwell in a land which God will give them, the land called Canaan, what comes the promised land. So they're going to be in a place given to them by God, in God's place. And they'll be under God's rule and blessing. He talks about the fact that he will be their God and they will be his people. He says he's going to bless them, and in turn, the whole world, he says, is going to be blessed through Abraham and his family. But there's a big problem, because Abraham and Sarah are getting on a bit. They don't have any children, and they just think, well, how is this actually going to happen? How can I, Abraham thinks, be a father of a great multitude, a great nation? Well, I'm old, and I've got no kids. My wife's old, and we've got no kids. What's going to happen? And he begins to get a bit worried. And so God sends to him a dream. The first thing he says is he tells Abraham to grab a load of animals and to chop them in half. And he says, once you've chopped these animals in half, you ought to lay them down like two sides of a path. And then Abraham falls into a deep sleep and has this really obscure vision where in his dream he sees these animal carcasses forming the path and a fire pot and a flame come down from heaven and they walk through between these animal carcasses. And we see that and we think, what on earth is going on? What had he eaten? What's going on in his head? What's going on is that this thing of cutting up animals and making a pathway was part of the process of making a covenant in the ancient world. And what you were doing is you were putting those carcasses there and the first person in the agreement would walk through and then the second person in the agreement would walk through. And when you walk through, the thing you're saying is you're saying, if I don't keep my side of this agreement, this contract, you can do to me what we've done to these animals. It's a way of saying that I am fully committing to this agreement because I say basically you can kill me and chop me in half if I don't keep my side of the bargain. The really important thing about this dream 
is that Abraham only sees this fire pot go through. The fire is a regular picture in the Bible for God. It's a representation of God walking through between these animals. Abraham doesn't walk through. Abraham isn't asked to walk through. God is showing Abraham through this dream that this covenant is a bit different. This covenant is a collection of promises which he, God, will fulfill no matter what happens. None of it depends on Abraham. None of it depends on Abraham's descendants. This is something that God is saying he will fulfill no matter what. This is one of the high points in the biblical story because all the way through now we have this line and we're waiting for God to reach it. This promise is there. God has to fulfill it. And so we're waiting all the way through to see how is God going to reach that pinnacle? How is he going to fulfill this promise? All of these promises are about a restoration of what has been lost in the garden. And so the big question we're asking all the way through now is where are these promises? How are they being fulfilled? How is God going to do it? So the kingdom status here is the kingdom promised. God's people have been promised. It's going to be Abraham and his descendants. God's place has also been promised. It's the promised land, Canaan, that Abraham and his descendants will take and inherit for themselves. And then God's rule and blessing have also been promised. Abraham's descendants will be blessed by God and they in turn will be a blessing to the world. And from here on in, we enter the kingdom begins. And from here right through the Old Testament, we see a, a kind of a partial physical realisation of these promises to Abraham. And for the next uh, section of the story, we can divide it roughly into the three parts of our kingdom motif that we've looked at. If we start with people, Abraham and Sarah do have a child, just as God has said, just as God had promised, a miraculous son called Isaac. And from Isaac come more and more um, descendants, and they do very quickly become a big nation. One of the descendants of Abraham is Joseph, who goes and works for Pharaoh eventually. You probably know the story from the musical from nowhere else. And when the people live in Egypt, they become greater and greater in number. And when a new Pharaoh arrives, he feels rather nervous about this. And he thinks there's all these people who aren't part of our nation, great multitudes of them living on our land. And so to keep them in control, he decides to enslave them. This is the beginning of the book of Exodus. But God hadn't forgotten his promise. And here's what happens, the beginning of the story of Exodus, one of my favourite verses in the Bible. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Dot, dot, dot. One of the most dramatic moments, I think, in the Bible story, God saw Remember those promises to Abraham. I've got to keep those promises, God knows. And God knew. He knew it was time to act. First off then, through Moses, through the plagues, Moses' trusty staff here, the plagues, through the Passover, where the angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites, through the crossing of the Red Sea, God brings these people out of Egypt so they are once again a free people. He's established them as God's people. Next, he looks at the rule and blessing. God leads them into the desert, leads them to Mount Sinai. And when he's there, he makes another covenant, another agreement. He gives them a load of rules, the Ten Commandments, and a load of others. And this covenant is a bit different from the one with Abraham. With Abraham, it was a promised covenant, saying, these are my promises, I'm going to do all this, all of the uh, you know, effort is on me. When it comes to the covenant with Moses, it's a two-sided covenant. 
And so God is saying to them, you need to keep my law. He gives them his law. He says, you need to keep my law and then you'll be able to live in this land as my people under my rule and blessing. But at the same time, he says, if you don't keep my law, there'll be curses. You won't be able to be my people, won't be my land, won't be under my rule and blessing. So they're under God's rule and blessing, but it's very much conditional on them keeping this law. And the last part of the story comes with the land. The next generation, led by Joshua, take all this land that God had promised them. The land we talk about and refer to as the promised land. They establish themselves there. They drive out different peoples and take the land that God had given them. So when we get to this point, it looks like God has fulfilled these promises to Abraham. God's people, they're Abraham's descendants. They're in this promised land. They're under God's rule and blessing. And so... um, we can read in Joshua, it says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers, i.e. Abraham. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The narrator is saying, look, look, all these promises have come to pass. But also, we've got to remember, it's still conditional. It's all dependent on Israel keeping that law. And so when Joshua is speaking to the people uh, late in his life, he speaks to them and he says, all these things, they've come to pass. But he says, just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he's destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God. He's saying, guys, this is great. God's done it. But we've got to keep God's law. If we don't keep God's law, we don't get to stay here. We don't get to be his people. We don't get to be under his rule and blessing. So there's fulfillment, but it's pretty precarious. It's not going to take much, actually, for it all to come crashing down. There's no guarantee that it will remain, that it will survive. The kingdom status, then, is that the kingdom is established, is there, but it is also totally conditional. God's people are Israel, Abraham's descendants. God's place is Canaan, the land they've taken, And God's rule and blessing is there upon and over Israel, so long as they keep God's law. The story continues with the the kingdom continuing. This precarious nature of the kingdom sadly soon becomes very evident. The period of the judges, who were just rulers, this is named for rulers, was characterised by this cycle of the Israelites disobeying God, breaking the law, and then God being gracious and raising up another judge, another ruler to help them. And that repeats again and again and again. And you read it and you think, well, where's the solution? What's going to stop this endless cycle? And the only hint in the text is that maybe a king would be helpful. The people look around and say, all these people around us, they've got kings. Actually, we want a king. And so in the next two books, 1 and 2 Samuel, the monarchy, the kingship becomes established. First off, we have Saul, who is a total disaster, to be frank. But following Saul comes David. David is a king and a man after God's own heart. He becomes the archetypal illustration of what it means to be God's king in God's place. And things go really quite well under David. They expand the territory. They take hold of Jerusalem, which was a city in the centre of the promised land. And they make it a new capital city for the people. And David establishes his uh, palace there and and lives there and most importantly it's to David that God makes some huge promises and these promises are not kind of new and out of the blue these are a repetition of the promises made to Abraham in that agreement but also in expansion 
He's repeating, but also he's showing a bit more how it's going to happen. He says, uh, God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me, for you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure for, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Huge promises about a kingdom that's going to go on forever, which have, in some sense, some fulfilment in David's immediate physical son Solomon, who does build a house for God, a temple for God, who does go through a period of a golden age of reign, but in another way isn't succeeded by Solomon. His uh, reign, as we're just about to see, is not eternal. There's something bigger going on here. Uh, yes, yeah, so under Solomon, there is something of a golden age. The beginning of one king shows us when the uh, kingdom of Israel was one of the greatest in the world and Solomon has all his wealth, all his riches. Everything that God has promised, again, seems to be fulfilled in even greater measure. And yet still, the old law is there telling us this is all conditional. So when Solomon dedicates the temple, gives his big speech and his big prayer, he stresses to the people, just as Joshua had, look, God's done it all but it's all conditional on us keeping this law. That's the vital thing throughout. And sadly, this conditional nature soon becomes all too apparent. The kingdom destroyed. Solomon quickly turns his heart away from God. He worships other gods, and God comes in judgment and divides the kingdom. 10 out of the 12 tribes of uh, Judah, uh, of Israel, break away. Up in the north, that is, that's the area that becomes known as Israel, it's on here, up in Israel, the north break away of the ten tribes, and two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, become the kingdom in the south. We've now got a divided people in the kingdom of Israel on the north and uh, Judah in the south. And they get two different kings. The south are still ruled by one of David's descendants. This is still a Davidic monarch, Rehoboam. But in the north, in Israel, God installs a non-Davidic king. Jeroboam, just to make life nice and easy, their names are almost identical. And the kingdom remains split, and across the whole long period of kings, you get some good kings, but you get majority bad kings. Majority kings who turn their own hearts away from God, who don't keep God's law, and lead the people astray so that they don't keep God's law. Ultimately, the people stay in rebellion, and God has to act, and the kingdom gets totally destroyed. First off, the northern kingdom, Israel, those ten tribes, they start worshipping golden calves. God judges them. He allows the mega, the kind of mega people of the day, the Assyrians, to come in and to destroy them, to take them captive, to make them slaves. They're no longer God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. They're now taken in by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah, uh, lasts a little bit longer, but not an awful lot. They also turn to other gods. They've broken God's covenant. They've failed to keep that vital thing of the law. And so God allows the superpower of that day to come in. The Babylonians come across. Again, they destroy the city. They destroy the temple. They take off the kind of high-status citizens to serve them back in Babylon. The kingdom status here is that the kingdom has been totally destroyed. Everything that seemed to be going so well has gone so wrong. 
no longer God's people, no longer in God's place, no longer under God's rule and blessing. It seems so good, and now it's all falling apart. But once again, we find that God isn't happy to give up on his people quite yet. We enter the kingdom prophesied. Remember, God's still got to fulfill those promises to Abraham. It's this pinnacle line he's got to reach. He's made that commitment. He will fulfill these promises. And he sends prophets. Prophets are just mouthpieces for God who come and bring his messages to people. And the writing prophet, so that's the one who wrote the, book, the prophetic books in the Old Testament, emerged during the decline, so kind of before that sign uh, goes up, and then also right all throughout the time of exile when the people were away, and then also when the people come back from exile. And you'll see there's a little chart on the next page which shows you where the different prophets who write and whose books are in the Bible, where they fit into this story. And the prophets have lots to say, but broadly speaking, we can divide their message into two halves. They're not just talking about the future, as we often might assume. Actually, they both look backwards and they look forward. The first half of their message is about judgment. They look backwards. They basically explain what's either just about to happen or what has happened, depending on when they're writing. They explain the fact that the people have failed to keep God's law, and so God is going to act. They show that this hasn't been out of God's control. It's not that the Assyrians and Babylonians got too powerful for God and they got in the way. Actually, the prophets show us, no, no, God has allowed this to happen in order to judge the people for their failure to keep this covenant. But then there's also a message of hope and restoration which points us down the timeline to keep going. And then the theme of hope, we can talk about these three elements of the kingdom of God. Starting with the people, there's two particularly important things. The prophets talk about a remnant, kind of a, a leftover, a few people who are left who are faithful to God, whose hearts haven't turned away, who haven't been living in rebellion to God. And he says, even though the vast majority have turned away, have rebelled, he's going to remember this remnant. He's going to use his remnant to rebuild the nation, to create a new people who in turn will bless the nations around them. And also within this, as well as a remnant theme, there's also the theme of an individual called different things, called uh, the servant, often Isaiah, the branch in several different texts, all sorts of different names for him. But there's hints that an individual is going to come who's going to be really significant. And even though he's only one person, one individual, he's going to have an impact on all people. So that's people. We then come to a place. The prophets look forward to a restoration of God's place. They talk sometimes about the city of Jerusalem <coughs> uh, and about the um, area of Israel. They talk also about the temple being rebuilt. But they also show us that God's plan and God's vision is even bigger, actually, than anyone had imagined. God gives promises to restore all things, actually to create a totally new heavens, a totally new earth. And then we reach his rule and blessing. And the prophets speak of a new covenant. It's going to be a totally new situation, a, a totally new way of dealing, of relating to God. Whereas in this whole story, the human heart has been the big issue. Actually, God's going to do something so big so deep as it were it will even change the human heart the big issue at the floor of everything that's happened that's the message of the prophets and then within about um, 60 or 70 years after the exile so after Jerusalem's under new management the exile ends in one sense in that a new superpower come on the scene the Persians and the Persians take a very different tact with their conquered peoples 
And the Persians allow some of the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem, to begin to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. And so there's some level of restoration of what's been lost. And yet the people look around them and they know it's not what God's promised. It's not actually even as good as things were before. The old men who remember the original temple look at the new temple when it's dedicated and they weep. They just say this isn't how it was. This isn't where God's meant to be living with us. And so even though there's some level of restoration, we're still waiting. That promise still remains. The problem right from the beginning of this story is still there. We're still waiting for something to happen. So the kingdom status under kingdom prophesied is that God's people have been prophesied. There's the remnant, there's an individual who's coming, and there's blessing promised for all the nations. God's place has been promised and prophesied, ultimately uh, being fulfilled in a new creation. And God's rule and blessing have also been prophesied and promised through this promise of a new covenant that's coming. And that's kind of where the Old Testament story ends. We end with this big problem. Humans have proved time and time again, all along the timeline, that they are unable of keeping God's law. They are unable of keeping that covenant and therefore unable of receiving what God is trying to do to fulfill those promises to Abraham. Yet God's promises to Abraham were unconditional. He has got to fulfill them. And so the big question still remains, how is God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, given the fact that clearly humans are totally unable to keep God's law? You're meant to get to the end of the Old Testament and feel a real sense of the story's not over and there's a really, really big problem which still hasn't been solved. There's an incomplete story. As well as an incomplete story, there's also loads in the Old Testament about the future. There's glimmers and glimpses and promises and predictions which form expectation. And in Jesus' day, expectation was really big. We'll talk in a little bit of the time what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the long and short of it was it wasn't a great time for God's people. And actually, there's this great expectation of God's got to come. God's got to come and do something. So we're going to stop now and do a quick activity. I've pulled out some key passages which talk about the future uh, that God is promising in the Old Testament. Almost all of them have quite direct significance to the Gospels. And what we're going to do is we're going to take maybe 10 minutes in our groups to look at one of these passages and to try and think, what does it say about the future? What does it say will happen? Who's going to be involved in this? And just what do you think people might have expected on the back of reading this? If you'd read this and you didn't know anything about Jesus, what would you have expected to happen on the back of it? And then you can also think, is there anything within what you're reading which reminds you of something in the Gospels? Are there any echoes, any things that you think that sounds like something that happens in the Gospels? Okay, how have we gone? Are we ready to share a bit of what we found? Even if you don't know if you've done the whole thing, don't worry about it, we'll share a few bits. We might not get time to go through all of them. Um, so don't feel offended if I don't pick yours. I'm just going to pick the ones that I think will most help us. 2 Samuel 7 I talked about and I read out actually. Who's doing that? Who wave. 2 Samuel 7, anyone doing that one? Is that you guys? I think it was you guys. Yeah. Two Samuel. So that's why I read out where these promises are made to David. Uh, and as I indicated, Solomon is a partial fulfillment. He builds a temple, but actually it must be pointing forward to something bigger later because it lasts for all of eternity and then linked to that is psalm 2 you guys down here what did you find that might be might form expectation and then might inform us in the gospels Um, 
Excellent. And the fact that because of that rule of being resisted throughout the trial, mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless it will be a final rule. Like Brilliant. Yeah. So Psalm 2 is a psalm probably used at coronations of kings in ancient Israel. But again, a bit like the proper words to um, David, it's too big just to be about a king of Israel. And so rightly was read as about someone coming. Uh, and then in the New Testament, it's read as about Jesus. And Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are two of the most significant um, texts about Jesus in the Old Testament. What about what might um, people expect this king to be like when he comes, based on what you've read in Psalm 2? Pretty fierce, absolutely. Uh, we've got here, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces with a potter's vessel. You could quite believe that someone would hear this and think a really violent king is going to arise, couldn't you? You can see why people might think that, and lots of people did think that. Anything else that stood out to you? Yeah, basically, yeah, you either kiss the son, lest he be angry, or his wrath will quickly be kindled. Um, it is, it's a divide system. He comes to judge, divides the people, as it were. Um, and yeah, if you're not favourable towards him. It's not good news. Yeah, wonderful ending. Yeah, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Great. Well done, guys. Um, let's um, skip to Ezekiel 37. Tell us about Ezekiel 37. Just tell us, for not people who haven't read it, what happens in the little scene. Excellent. And did you catch, you said it, it represents two things. Yeah. You said one of them there about resurrection. Did you get what the other thing is? It is less obvious to us. Okay. Um, okay. Let me find that bit. I can't find it. In its initial, it has two meanings. This really famous um, vision of these bones which are dead and then God tells Ezekiel to speak to them, to prophesy to them and they come to life. In the first instance, it talks about the return from exile. So when these people are being, you know, Jerusalem's under new management, people being cast off, cities destroyed. The first interpretation given by Ezekiel is that this is about a restoration of uh, the people of God in the place of God. But then he also talks, that's right, about people coming out of graves. And this is one of the first um, glimmers in the Old Testament, one of the few glimmers in the Old Testament of resurrection. And the expectation when Jesus came, uh, and all throughout the Bible actually, is not that eternity is spent on a cloud and we're playing harps with fat little angels, but that it is um, a resurrection in a body, but a body perfectly made, um, and life with God in that eternally. And something we may talk about later, really important for the Gospels, no, every Jew who believed in resurrection, which is not all of them, but all of them who did, believed everyone will be raised together on one day. The idea that one person will be raised in the middle of history is utterly unheard of in Judaism. That's really important for interpreting the resurrection, and we'll talk about that when we get there in the Gospels. Also really important proof that the resurrection happened. There is no reason why any Jew would make up the story of Jesus being raised from the dead, because it doesn't fit with what anyone thought would happen. So they would not, if they'd made up a story of what happened after Jesus died, that's not the one they would have made, because no one thought that just one person in the middle of history would be resurrected. But from this passage, there's this idea that there's going to be a return from exile. They are going to be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing again. And there'll be um, a resurrection in the future. Great, well done, guys. Daniel 7. What do we find? <laughs> Adam is being pointed at. Um, so 
Good, represented by? Four beasts, brilliant, yep. Um, then we have God's judgment and justice being committed to bring about an everlasting kingdom of things finished. Excellent. So Daniel is um, a funny book. It has half history, just nice stories, and then half what's called apocalyptic, which literally means unveiling or un, uh, kind of revealing. So apocalyptic literature pulls back, as it were, the curtains of what's going on in the spiritual realm and uh, in Daniel has several visions which talk about what's going to happen and you're spot on that this vision of these beasts is about four kingdoms who are going to come who we'll talk about in the, a minute the Persians the Greeks um, and the Romans and then that Jesus comes at the end or that someone's going to come at the end and is going to uh, establish a kingdom that's totally different that's going to go on for all eternity and what about the first bit that I said is the end of the previous vision what does that talk about Who does what? Excellent. And where does he go? To the Ancient of Days. So just before I gave the guys, there's a vision, there's the end of the vision. It's really, really important for the New Testament and the Gospels. The Son of Man is Jesus' most um, favoured term for himself. We'll definitely have to talk about it later. But it comes primarily from this great vision. Uh, Daniel looks, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man, based on Old Testament background, is one who goes to God on the clouds of heaven, which means he is God, is a sign of divinity, um, and receives all dominion, all power, all uh, glory from God. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, even though it sounds like a really mundane term, He's probably almost certainly pointing to this and he's making a huge, huge claim about himself. He's saying he's the one who one day will ascend on the clouds of glory, who will go to be with God and the God of all the universe will give all authority, all power and everlasting kingdom to him. We'll definitely come back to that, as I said, but that's a really, really important one. Um, Zechariah 9, was that you? This is a lovely one. What did you find in Zechariah 9? Mm. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, it is beautiful. Isn't it? The, the verses before it are all about um, God coming and judging the nations. But even within the nations, interesting that passage, there's a remnant. So God's actually going to save some people who are not Jews from the nations. And then it talks about, yeah, all this rejoicing, this shouting aloud, because a king, the king, is arriving. He's a righteous king. He's bringing salvation. As you said, brilliantly picked out that he comes and brings a covenant through blood. And this passage, remind you of anything of the Gospels? Do you think of... It is. And what, what, what particular scene in the Gospels? 
Excellent, yeah, the triumphal entry. This is uh, a foretelling of Jesus' triumphal entry. But actually, this almost certainly, in a sense, this gave Jesus a script. It wasn't always the case that the Gospel writers sat down with their story of Jesus and the Old Testament and they went, oh, look, Jesus there has fulfilled this prophecy. And it's almost certain that Jesus knew this text and he was showing to people, he's saying, I am the promised king who is coming. Therefore, I am going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, humbly, all these things. He's enacting, performing this in a sense to show that he is the deliverer that God had promised. That's a really important one, uh, really relevant to the Gospels because it's quoted in two of them, I think, and for all of them, it f- forms the, the shape of this story of Jesus' entry to Jerusalem. Was it Paul that would arrive at the exact day as prophesied by the Valley of Jones, the day of the Daniel? I don't know. <laughs> Cheers, mate. I don't know, actually. I'll have to look into that one. Have you heard that said? Ah, possibly then. Timings are always really, really difficult um, because there were different calendars being used in the ancient world, basically. So it's hard to know for certain, but it's well within the possibility. Um, and then finally, Malachi, guys at the back. What did you find in Malachi? <laughs> I'll pick on someone I know. Says it. Good. Excellent. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, yeah. So that's a really good point. So there's this constant motif in Old Testament prophecy. Uh, of the day of the Lord, this kind of day of reckoning, a day of um, judgment and a day of salvation. And um, <coughs> within kind of the, the framework of Jewish belief that emerges from the Old Testament, it says that this is one day in which all human history kind of culminates. But you're spot on right. Once Jesus comes, we find actually uh, the story is somewhat more complex, actually. And Jesus comes once. Some people divide it. Jesus came once to save and then once to judge, once to judge in his second coming. I think that's unhelpful. Um, but there's certainly a sense that the day of the Lord, in a sense, comes um, at the time of Jesus coming, his first coming to earth, but then he comes fully, in a sense, and the job is finished at his second coming. So you're spot on right, that kind of gets split up. And what, immediately after the messenger, at the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 3, what happens, uh, who else arrives, and what happens? Someone goes somewhere. Okay. So Malachi is written after they've returned to the land. The new temple has been built, so people aren't happy with it. As we said, the old men are crying because they look at it, they know this isn't what God wanted. But here's a promise, a messenger's going to come, and then the Lord, God himself, will walk into the temple. And in the Gospels, we find Jesus himself coming after the messenger, after John the Baptist, walking into the temple. So there's a few flavours there, some of the kind of the key ones for the Gospels, but there's loads and loads of different things that shape expectation of Jewish people in Jesus' time. Um, we'll talk more, I think, in a few minutes about this, but a few things that kind of come through often are this idea of kingship that we had in Psalm 2 would also come through in um, Isaiah 11, and this theme, actually, of a kind of a, a warrior king who's going to defeat enemies. Also then, though, this idea of a king who can be very peaceful seeming and very humble that we had here riding um, the donkey. This idea of chronology, that there's a day of reckoning coming. This idea of an eternal kingdom that we had in the Daniel passage, 
and elsewhere. Um, and these glimmers of resurrection in Ezekiel, in Job, in um, Isaiah 24, I think, um, you get glimmers that it's all going to end in resurrection as well. All these different things are uh, feeding into people's minds, as it were, and they're how people interpret Jesus. So you've got the two things. You've got how is this story going to end? How are these promises going to be fulfilled? But also you've got all these expectations because of all these promises that have been made. And it is against that backdrop we've got to read the New Testament Gospels. And really, the better you know the Old Testament, the better you'll be able to understand the New Testament Gospels, which can be quite hard work, but it's very worthwhile when we do it. And when we do our journeys to reach the Gospels over the coming weeks, there'll be many a time when we'll realise that we need to understand something from the Old Testament to understand what Jesus is saying or doing or what's actually going on in the New. So that is the first main context, the scriptural context, which is really vital to understanding the Gospels. The second context is the religious context slash historical context. These two kind of mix together. The scriptural story takes us to about 450 years before Jesus is born. That means there's a big gap between the end of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. What you guys just read is the end of um, what was written in the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus and then of the writing of the New Testament. And it's really important to know something of what happens in this big gap, because it's in these years and through what happens at this time that Judaism develops and creates the Judaism of the day of Jesus, the context in which he lived and um, spoke the things he expected people to know in order to be able to understand what he says and what he does. This period, sometimes called the intertestamental period, because it's in between the two testaments, or the Second Temple period, which is when the people return to the land, they build a temple, uh, so that's the book of Ezra tells us about that, uh, which is the Second Temple, so it's called the Second Temple period, which goes through till 70 AD. And we're really lucky that we can know lots about this period, just to convince you that's true. We have lots and lots of texts from Jews at this time. We have the Apocrypha, which is a collection of texts um, included in the Bible by Catholics, but not included by anyone in the Bible until centuries after Jesus, not even confirmed by Catholics as Bible until the 1500s, but texts written by Jews which give us history, which give us Jewish thinking from the time. We have um, the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, which is the favourite volumes in my collection, um, of which I believe there's now a third volume being added to this. Huge, as you can see, countless texts of all different sorts of varieties which have been discovered in deserts and monasteries and places over the last few hundred years which give us an insight into all the different varieties really of Judaism in between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We also have the Dead Sea Scrolls you might well have heard of. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written by a community who lived at a place called Qumran which is on the um, shore of the Dead Sea which is in the south of Israel. Um, they were um, a splinter group basically who didn't like what was going on in Jerusalem with the main uh, center of Judaism and so created their own monastic style community and these texts were found around the time of the Second World War and have been really hugely significant particularly for things like understanding what people thought about the Messiah who was going to come these are really important and then we have writers like Josephus and Philo Josephus is a Jewish historian about the time of Jesus who writes this thick work and three others and Philo, who lived in Alexandria in Egypt and wrote all sorts of um, very, uh, not mystical, very kind of clever stuff. He was very much influenced by Greek philosophy. But there's just loads of stuff we have which tells us about this period. And so there's loads of things we can uh, draw from to understand how were people thinking in Jesus' day? What stories did they know? What experiences had they had? What were they really longing for? 
And how then in the Gospels does Jesus meet those longings? What I'll do in the time we've got left, I'll quickly zip you through the history of this time and then we'll pick out one or two key bits of Judaism in Jesus' day and I'll leave the rest so that if you want to, you can read it at home. The story I'm going to tell overlaps with the end of the Old Testament where the Persians, uh, King Cyrus, has allowed the people to return to Israel to rebuild the temple there. And so the exiles are back, but as we said, they're not fully happy. It's not how it was. And two really important things happen in this whole period. One is that the law of the Old Testament becomes of increased importance. For one, that was because when there wasn't a temple, Jewish life became revolved, uh, centered around the law rather than around the temple. And also many people chose not to come back actually to the Jewish promised land. And so if you live away from where the temple is, the law becomes the center. So synagogues emerged during this period of history, and that's because people can't get to the temple. And so instead, religious life revolves around reading the law together in the synagogue. The second thing, which will become really important, is that the high priest becomes uh, the most significant person in Jewish society. There was no Jewish king because the Persian rulers, the um, uh, Persian kings were the guys really in charge and Persian governors ruled over the land. So as far as the Jewish people went, the most important figure was the high priest. And that will become very important as the story goes on. So it's a real time of change and difficulty because even though they're back in the land, they're not a free people. They're under the rule of the Persians. And basically the big question is, what does it look like to be a Jew in that context? And between then, so the end of the Old Testament and um, kind of the 330s BC, we actually don't know much. Having said there's lots of information, it is a kind of a quiet period. We're not 100% sure the Persians kept ruling. They allowed people to have their own religions. So the Jews probably carried on with this not so great temple. And then we get to the 300s BC. And that's when Alexander the Great was born. Alexander the Great was an incredible guy. He only lived for about 32 years, but he conquered and created a kingdom that went right from Egypt in the north of uh, Africa and kind of right across to India. One of the biggest kingdoms that ever existed at the time in a really short time. And he, like his dad, really loved all things Greek. They were actually from Macedonia, but his dad had defeated Athens and he loved Greek thought and architecture and everything about the Greeks. And so he basically took all that on to himself. And when uh, Alexander's dad and Alexander conquered all these countries, they tried to make them Greek. They started a process we call Hellenization, which just means to make something Greek. They wanted them to think like Greeks and dress like Greeks and eat like Greeks and go to the gym and the theater uh, like Greeks did. And then in 331 BC, he conquers Israel. He gets rid of the Persians and now Greek rule is over God's people in Israel. He doesn't live much longer. When he dies in 323, things are really messy. He doesn't have a son who's able to take on the kingdom for him. And so his kingdom gets divided into four. And two of these four are really important to us. Up in the north, there's a map in your uh, notes here, are a group of people called the Seleucids. They rule a place called Syria, which is that dark, dotty bit on the top of the map. And then down to the south in Egypt and surrounding lands were a dynasty called the Ptolemies who ruled down there. And if you look at your map, that tiny little black blob in the middle is Israel. They are literally squashed between these two big powers of the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south. They are the bit of land joining them there, kind of the bridge between the two, which basically is a really dangerous place to be in because if those guys start fighting, they are literally piggy in the middle. 
At the start, when Alexander dies, the Ptolemies down in the south in Egypt rule Israel. And they're quite like the Persians. They say, you guys can keep your temple, you can keep worshipping your God. We're not going to interfere much, apart from the fact that because we keep fighting the Seleucids and we need money, we're going to take your money. So this is where the hatred of tax collectors in the New Testament starts. And all throughout this period, money is being taken from the Jewish people by their uh, foreign overlords, which creates this real hatred of tax collectors by the time of the New Testament. But a bit later, 198 BC, so 200 years before Jesus, the Seleucids in the north defeat the, the Ptolemies in the south and they capture Israel. And this is really bad news for Israel because the Seleucids are much less laid back about their conquered peoples, much more committed to Hellenization, to making people Greek. And they start a really aggressive policy of trying to make the Israel and the Israelites live like Greek people. And this, when, in a sense, when the temperature is turned up, this is when Judaism, as we know it in the time of Jesus, really begins to develop. And the key question now becomes, what does it look like to be a faithful, uh, faithful Jew under Greek rule? When you're trying to be forced to do things in Greek ways, what does it look like to be faithful to the covenant God? Should they adopt Greek ways and go along with it? Or actually, should they resist and cling to their Jewish traditions? And we begin at this point to get splinter groups who choose to do different things. Some who opt for the former, they say, I'm happy to take on some Greek ways. Some people really like it. Some guys who go to the um, Greek gyms feel really embarrassed that they're Jewish and they're circumcised and actually try to reverse their circumcision. So people can't tell that's how much they wanted to be Greek. Others go to the other extreme and deliberately be non-Greek and they put up the importance of all things Jewish to look totally different. And these things continue, but then really come to a head with a guy called Antiochus IV. This is kind of 175 BC. Antiochus gave himself the name Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, which means God, or Antiochus, God manifest. He had very, very big views of himself, you might say. Over the next 10 years, it's a ridiculously complex story of high priests, Hellenists, Jews, murder, bribery, taxation, all sorts, proper soap opera stuff. So we'll just take the three key steps which are central to Jewish understanding by the time of Jesus. First of all, 169 BC, um, Antiochus owes the Romans a lot of money because of battles elsewhere. He decides he wants the money from Israel, and so he comes down. There's a pro-Greek high priest who likes him, who basically takes him by the hand, walks him into the temple, past the point where Gentiles could go, past the point where women could go, into the area where only Jewish men could go. They go into the treasury, take the treasure, take the money, and walk out. He has totally broken the Jewish law, let alone taken their money, He's defiled the temple by going into parts he shouldn't, into this sacred place. A few years later, some anti-Greek Jews who don't like him and want Jewish rule back, uh, they hear a rumour that he's died, and they actually start to try and kind of reclaim power for the Jews through it. When Antiochus hasn't actually died and travels back through Israel from Egypt to Syria, he realises this, decides he's not happy with people trying to get rid of him and trying to have a rebellion, and breaks any freedoms there has and tell them Jerusalem has to become a Greek city. Anything that is specifically Jewish gets completely banned. And so this issue of how do you live as a Jew in the Greek empire becomes even more difficult and even more complex. But the ultimate insult came in December of 167 BC. Antiochus comes into the temple. He builds in the forecourt of the temple where most of the Jewish worship happened, a new altar 
He sacrifices on this altar a pig to the Greek god Zeus. Everything about this is totally wrong. He's going into the part of the temple he's not allowed to. He builds an uh, altar on which he sacrifices a pig, which is an unclean animal in um, Old Testament law. And it's not sacrificed to the living God, it's sacrificed to Zeus, the, God, the kind of king of the Greek pantheon. This becomes the pinnacle in Jewish understanding of foreign rulers uh, trampling over their religion. It's an event prophesied in Daniel 11:31, where it's called the abomination that causes desolation. When we come to the Gospels, we'll find that Jesus uses that phrase, abomination of um, desolation, as this symbolic word for the pinnacle of Gentile rebellion, basically, against the living God. That's how Jews thought of it, and that's how Jesus used it in the Gospels. And this is so terrible that some of the people who don't like the Greeks think we can't stay silent, we can't just give up. And so under the leader, leadership of a guy called Judas Maccabeus, they form a kind of makeshift army, basically, of Joe Bloggs, Jew on the street. And against all odds, they, actually, all odds, they defeat Antiochus, they get rid of the Seleucids, and they actually restore Jewish worship and Jewish um, rule. And so if you've heard of the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, this is the um, event that that festival celebrates. This was an incredible thing. And so whereas the um, defilement of the temple by Antiochus becomes the pinnacle of what an evil Gentile ruler would do, this becomes the amazing model of what God can do through his people. And um, just like the Exodus is used in the Old Testament and New Testament as a, a model of how God acts, of how God saves his people, this victory by the Maccabeans, or the Hasmoneans as they're also known, becomes a model for the Jewish people of how God can rescue, through violent warfare basically, God can rescue his people and put them back in charge. So for the next 100 years, the Maccabees, under the name of the Hasmoneans, rule over the Jewish people. We got a slight, you could say, uh, return back to the original plan of God's people uh, ruling themselves. And in this period, Judah is ruled by a high priest who is also acting as a king. And actually, there's big problems with that. There's two problems with what happens. One is that the high priest had to be descended from Zadok because he came, he was the priest at the time of David. He came from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. And all the high priests had to be descended from that one family. But the guy, these guys weren't. So they were, in a sense, illegitimate high priests. The other problem with high priest kings is that the Old Testament is really clear. You shouldn't mix high priests and kings because high priests come from the tribe of Levi and kings come from the tribe of Judah. And you can't be from both. And so to mix the two must be a wrong thing. Some people thought, well, this is a necessary evil for the time being. These guys are the rulers we need. Some people thought this is totally wrong. Almost certainly, the guys who went off to Qumran and were the Dead Sea Scrolls were so opposed to the idea of joining king and priest that they went away. And uh, as we'll say later, these guys actually believed there would be two messiahs. They believed there'd be a king messiah and a priest messiah because they were so adamant that you could not combine king and priest. And that's how all of their kind of life in the desert gets started. Things don't really go so well. By 100 years later, Judah is basically in civil war. Particularly, there's so much argument about who should be in charge of the high priest that eventually one of the um, uh, sides in this war brings the Romans and again almost leads them by the hand into Jerusalem and allows them to take over. And it's the Romans who are in charge at the time of the Gospels when Jesus arrives, the Romans have been ruling for uh, kind of 60 or 70 years. 
The question remains, how are people to live faithfully under these foreign rulers? Herod the Great ruled uh, Judea and Galilee, so that's the main territory of the Gospels cover, from 37 to 4 BC, and Jesus is born within that time. Jesus is born about 6 BC because of miscalculations uh, a few hundred years ago. And he was the king of the Jews, but he was under the authority of the Romans, the Romans very much in charge. When he dies, his kingdom split between his three sons, and this is the situation uh, when Jesus is alive. Up in the uh, northeast is Philip. He's not all that important to the Gospels. Antipas, Herod Antipas, rules Galilee. So that's the northern area. So when the trial of Jesus takes place, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod uh, Antipas because he hears that he's actually from the north. So he comes into the Gospels. And then Archelaus is ruling in Judea. He didn't do a very good job. And so in 6 AD, the Romans get rid of him and install a prefect. And so by the time of Jesus, the prefect is Pilate. And these guys are Romans and they are directly ruling this area as Romans and consolidating their power. All of this poses big problems for Jews. Again, how do they live in this time? And the emperors kind of go even worse. They often actually saw uh, their forebears, the emperors who died, as gods in themselves. They deified them and said, this guy was a god. And that meant that living emperors could be called son of God. So some way, one way in which the language of son of God was used in the ancient world was about the emperors, because they were the sons of people who were now gods. The Roman Empire was also believed to have brought universal peace across the world. It was believed to have brought salvation. There were the declarations that the emperors had brought salvations. And there's um, an inscription, I didn't put your notes, of Augustus, who's the first um, Roman emperor, who talks about on his birthday how the god Augustus, he is a god, had come and proclaimed good news, which is the word gospel, um, about the salvation that he has worked. All this language we know of as um, in the gospels, which is very Jewish, also actually is a direct challenge to the Romans. They're saying the emperor isn't the son of God, actually. The emperor isn't the one who brings good news. The emperor isn't the one who brings true peace. Actually, there's a baby born in a stable, and he's the one who challenges all of this. He's the ultimate um, <coughs> ruler of all. And within the Roman Empire, the Jews had been given special uh, permission to uh, practice their religion. So they were given quite a lot of freedom. They could have their temple. They could worship as they wanted to. And they were allowed to not take part in Roman religion. But they were still expected to pray for the emperor. So that quick overview of the history between Old Testament and New Testament shows you it's a really, really turbulent time. Most of it characterised by foreign rule, where the Jews are being ruled over by different great nations. And so it becomes really difficult to decide what does it look like to live as God's people. And all the way through, of course, there's still this promise to Abraham. There's still all the things the prophets had said, all these expectations, still this waiting and waiting and waiting to see what's actually going to happen. Uh, how is God going to fulfill these promises? How is he going to get rid of the Romans? And so around the time of Jesus, there's this great anticipation of waiting. And it really came to a head in the first century. The time of Jesus is when people really got utterly fed up with the Romans and there's lots of attempts to get rid of them. In view of that, let's jump across to Jewish hope at the time of Jesus. We'll do this uh, and we'll probably finish there. I'll leave the rest so you can read it if you want to. Understanding what Jews were wanting, hoping, waiting for in the time of Jesus is really vital. This is page 13, sorry. Really vital for understanding um, what God was going to do. You can't really talk about Judaism in the time of Jesus because there was so much variation 
So really, we have to talk about Judaism. So there were lots of different views about what should be done and about what was going to happen. But there are a few things which were so commonly held, we can say they really characterise what Jews are hoping for when the time Jesus uh, comes. First off is the end of the exile. Despite the fact that for 500 years they've been back in the land, actually many Jews still viewed the exile as taking place. Because even though for a short time the Hasmoneans had ruled the Jewish high priest kings, actually ultimately they were still under the power of foreign rulers. This wasn't what God had promised when he promised he'd bring them back uh, to their land to be his people. And so there's still this sense of waiting. They're waiting to be free again. They're waiting for these foreign overlords to be done away with and to rule themselves to enjoy life in the land. They're still awaiting the fulfillment of God's promises. There were the promises to the prophets. There were the promise to David in that 2 Samuel 7 about the uh, kingdom that's going to go on forever. And the promise made to Abraham. They haven't forgot them. They're still waiting for them. And in the Gospels that comes through, and a lot of the New Testament is explaining how those promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. The motif of the age to come is really important. The kind of timeline view Jews in Jesus' day had of history was that we currently lived in the present age, the age of kind of normal life, the age where foreign nations will invade, will rule over them, will um, attack them, the age where everything is broken and hampered by sin, but that there is an age to come which is on its way. And the age to come becomes kind of a uh, uh, catch-all term for when God has restored all things, when God has worked this great act of salvation, where everything is put back in its rightful place, the Gentiles are chucked out, God is king again over his people, and everything has been put right. So all Jews are waiting for this age to come. And then we have the resurrection and new creation. The idea of resurrection emerges in the Old Testament, most, but not all, Jews um, believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees, as you might know from the New Testament, didn't believe there was going to be a resurrection. Basically, probably because they were the, the top dogs, they were the kind of aristocrats of Israel, the people in charge, and for them, life was pretty comfortable, and they didn't see much need for resurrection, so they kind of did away with that. Whereas actually, for most people, resurrection was the only chance of happiness in bodily life, really. Life could be so miserable, so tough, under the rules of these different empires. And they longed for the day that God would bring resurrection. But as I said, the expectation throughout is that there'll be one day and everyone will be raised there. And that's really important. But there's also this idea that a new creation is going to come. There were different beliefs about how this would happen. Some people thought it would be a totally new creation. Some people thought the existing creation would be kind of smartened up. Some people thought heaven and earth would mix together and make a new creation. But everyone's waiting for God to renew and restore uh, what has been lost and what has been broken. And then everyone's waiting for God to be the universal king. There's this slight kind of tension in Old Testament and in Judaism of Jesus' day that they affirm that God is king over all, all the time, and yet God is also not currently their king, in a sense. God is waiting to be king. And so we know that Jews were longing to be king, and we have uh, for God to be king. We have stories in Josephus of lots of rebellions in the first century of people who are so fed up with the Romans, they want to get rid of them. And they go around with this kind of battle cry of they have no king but God. Jump to the passion narratives, the story of Jesus' death in the Gospels. And Jesus is crucified as the king of the Jews. And the theme that comes through all of them is that he is the king. And contrary to any expectation, actually, the way this king claims his throne is not by some great act of military defeat, but actually is by suffering and dying on a cross. And Tom Wright says the Gospels are the story of how God became king 
And I think he's right. I think that's a really good summary of what the Gospels are. Ultimately, they're the story of how God reclaims his position, lost right back there, of being king over all. And then finally, I think finally, what about beliefs about the Messiah? Messiah is the same word as Christ. Messiah's Hebrew, Christ is Greek. It means just anointed one. And it marks out a significant figure. In the Old Testament, there are various messiahs, anointed people, kings, prophets, priests, even foreign rulers. So Cyrus, who allows them to return and rebuild the temple, is called an anointed one, a messiah. But by this time, it has sharpened down into the idea that an anointed person is going to come as the rescuer of God's people. So just like in the prophets, there is the idea of an individual is going to come, is going to rescue us. This idea developed that one individual, the messiah, will come and will rescue the people. There was, though, no one view of what the Messiah would be like. And actually, there are plenty of texts, say, in these big books um, from Jews of the time who didn't actually expect a Messiah at all. It wasn't uh, the be-all and end-all of expectation. And there were several different types of Messiah who might come. People had different ideas about what this person was going to look like. One really common one, probably the most common, was that he would be a Davidic king. So the promise to David and promise to Abraham even, who was told kings would come from him, would be fulfilled through a king messiah who'd be descended from David, who would establish this eternal rule spoken about in 2 Samuel 7 and in um, Daniel 7. And often he was believed to be a violent guy, a violent warrior who would come. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a whole scroll called the War Scroll, all about this big battle between the sons of light and the sons of darkness, who were led by this prince messiah, who's going to come and is going to violently overthrow the Romans. That's why some people in Jesus' day think that the approach that God's going to take is going to be violent. That's why when Peter says, you are the Christ, and Jesus says, you're right, and I'm going to suffer and die, Peter goes and rebukes him. He thinks, no, no, you're crazy. You're the Christ. You're going to go and slaughter the Romans. But actually, Jesus came bringing a totally different understanding of what it means to be Messiah. Um, so some were kingly, some were priestly. They were a priestly um, messiah who did priestly functions. Priests taught the law and made the sacrifices. And as I said, at um, Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's this idea of two messiahs, one who's a king and one who's a priest, because the two couldn't be combined. Yet in Jesus, they are combined. Anyone think how Jesus combines priest and king and why it's not a problem? Any name come to mind? Oh, yeah, you've got it. <laughs> We're looking for a guy called Melchizedek. So Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, so he can be a king because he's from the tribe of Judah. He's a descendant of David. He can't be a normal priest in a sense because he's not from the tribe of Levi. He can't be a priest. But in um, Psalm 110, there's this talk of a guy called Melchizedek who meets Abraham as well, who is a priest forever. And Melchizedek is this weird figure in um, Genesis who meets Abraham on a road and uh, blesses him and does different things and then disappears. And so Jewish interpreters says he has no birth and no death because he just appears and he just disappears. There's no family tree. He is an eternal priest who goes on forever. But he's not a Levite. He's a different sort of priest. And so the author to the Hebrews and the New Testament will say that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So he can be both king because he's descended from David and he can be priest but not a Levite priest, because he can't be both together, but actually he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which means he's got an eternal priesthood. So even though it's totally true, you can't combine king and priest in the Old Testament, Jesus can do it because his priesthood is slightly different. 
Sorry, that was a geeky side note. There's also then a prophetic uh, Messiah, a less common one, but some people uh, expected a Messiah to come who would be a new prophet. And that comes from Deuteronomy, where Moses says, you're to wait for a prophet who will come after me. Some people thought the Messiah would just be a kind of special human who would come, would defeat the Romans, would rule for a time, and then actually would die. Um, so the text of 4 Ezra says he's going to come, he'll do it, then he'll die. Life will be put back to normal, as it were, or things will be as they should be, but the Messiah doesn't stay around. Some people believed he would be this transcendent figure, that he would be almost divine, if not divine. But interestingly, there's no evidence that anyone in Jesus' day who was a Jew expected a Messiah to come and to suffer. So that's why Jesus' disciples have so much difficulty in understanding how Jesus can be the Messiah if actually he suffers and dies. Likewise, why so many of their contemporaries, when they're preaching the gospel in Acts, can't understand the fact that this guy who was crucified, the most shameful form of suffering in the ancient world, can actually claim to be the Messiah, to be the one that God had promised would come. So the religious world of Jesus is really complex, it's really multifaceted. There's more you can read about the groups who we encounter in the Gospels, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There's more you can read about what they believed, what they um, did, what they kind of uh, practiced. And Jesus fits into this context. He brings the end to all the unfinished stories of the Old Testament and of that period. He brings the true reality of all this expectation, this waiting for something to happen. But he didn't really um, ally himself with any one strand of expectation. And in many ways, when Jesus turns up, he's a real surprise. That's why the disciples really struggle to understand him in the Gospels, because there's all this expectation, and Jesus does fulfill it, but in a way no one had ever imagined would take place. And so constantly we'll find through the Gospels what Jesus is doing is teaching the disciples and teaching us that this is what it really looks like to fulfill this. This is what it really looks like to be the Messiah, to fulfill all this expectation. But ultimately, Jesus, uh, in Jesus, God was reclaiming his rightful position as king. He was ultimately fulfilling all these promises, fulfilling the promises made to Abraham, and by doing that, taking us back to uh, the original idea of Genesis 1. And each gospel, as I said last week, gives its own unique perspective from the four corners, as it were, of this story of Jesus coming to earth to reclaim for God his kingship. So next week we'll tackle number one with that, looking at Mark and how he tells us the story of Jesus becoming king. Thank you guys, same place, same time, next week in here.